Welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and uh, I am one of the Pugsters, and uh, I am a pastor in the Pacific Northwest in the greater Portland area. I've written things. I've been a college professor. I've even been a real estate investor. And uh, anyway, we're glad to have you here with the Theology Podcast. And if this is your first time with the sh- uh, us on the show, we do this every every show just because we don't assume that people know who we are. So that's a little bit about me. And uh, why don't we go around the horn? And I'll go to you, Tom, next, and then to you, Glenn. Then I just have a couple more things to say. But today is Glenn's day, and we've got a fascinating subject to talk about. And uh, uh, well, I won't say anything about it because that's for you, Glenn. But anyway, Tom, tell us about yourself. I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, philosophy, philosophy of religion, other things. <laughs> I um, Writing, I've talked a little bit about it, a book that I hope to be out in the very near future, one taking uh, systematic theological um, moral reflection and issues related especially to technology and the ways they p- can often benefit but also alter our relationships to reality and the like. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm just wi- widening my reach, uh, so to speak. So there'll be more about that in the near future as well. Great. Great. Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor from Central Connecticut State University. For those of you who know the lingua, lingo, I'm a professor emeritus. Um, and along with that, right now, I am working with uh, Ken Boa and on Reflections Ministries at Reflections Ministries, and I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and a couple of other things. Okay. Well, this is going to be a weird thing for me to say before I turn it over to you, Glenn, but uh, this show is coming out after the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference in Nashville, but we're recording it before we go. So <laughs> it was great to see you all there. <laughs> And it was just a marvelous event, and we just enjoyed your company so much, and there are just so many people that uh, introduced themselves, and the t-shirts were a big hit. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I'm saying all that... You didn't know that Chris did prophecy, did you? <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's my word of knowledge for the day. <laughs> anyway, uh, all of that said, uh, today is a fun show, uh, even though, um, you know, we're speaking to you after post the, uh, you know, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and the live show we did there. We're doing a show here uh, with ourselves because the show that uh, we will be recording uh, with the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network is going to be strictly the property of the Fight, Laugh, Feast, which is great, as we expected. And, uh, uh, you know, that that conversation was with George Grant. But uh, we still are doing a show for folks who couldn't make it to the show or make it to the Fight, Laugh, Feast uh, conference. And uh, today is Glenn's day. So what are we talking about today, Glenn? Before we get to that, uh, we should mention Davenant Hall. Oh, right. Yep. The great folks over at Davenant Hall. They've got a uh, a marvelous uh, online catalog. They've got a program of study that uh, you can participate in. And uh, the cost per credit hour uh, is lower than you're going to find just about anywhere. But the quality of education is as high as you'll have anywhere. So uh, we encourage you to check that out. Uh, there are a number of different uh, courses that are there on the Davenant Hall, Davenant Hall website. Uh, they uh, do great work with uh, 
you know, original languages, uh, Latin, Hebrew, Greek, and so forth. So go ahead and follow the link that's in the show notes to Davenant Hall. I believe that they are getting their their fall, uh, you know, courses off the ground here in mid-month of the, of the month of September. So uh, you still probably have a chance to jump in and be a part of uh, the very first class. Check it out. Thanks a lot. Okay, Glenn. Yeah, and I'm going to add one more uh, note here. And that has to do with my brother, Don. Uh, Don is a, an incredibly gifted evangelist who also teaches evangelism. And if you are looking for an evangelism program, I'd encourage you to take a look at what he does at donsunshine.org. So let me, let me put that in uh, as a plug for my brother, literal <laughs> biological brother. Uh, <laughs> Right, right. Um, Don, Don was number three son out of five. I am number five out of five. <laughs> gotcha, okay, gotcha. so um, what we're going to do today, I, I'd like to talk a bit about an article that was in the Imaginative Conservative. I think it goes back all the way to 2013. We'll have it in the show notes. It's called The Philosophy of the Vampire. Now, I got to tell you ahead of time, this is a tough article. Um there were a number of points at which I just sort of wanted to grab the guy, slap him alongside the head and say, write in English. Um, <laughs> I read this thing. Th 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 things like this are the reason why I didn't major in philosophy. <laughs> okay. It's, it, I, I am too much of a Renaissance humanist. I believe clarity is really important. <laughs> Having said that, the article includes a whole bunch of really interesting reflections on philosophy or the philosophy of the world depicted in Bram Stoker's Dracula. So as we're talking about this, we're really looking at the world and worldviews, plural, of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Okay, so he begins, interestingly enough, with a quote from the book. And I am going to just bottom line it to the last sense, sentence of this. Now, the book is technically called an epistolary novel. That is to say, it isn't a normal novel. It's written as, a, as letters or excerpts of, of diaries or things like that, rather than a straightforward narrative. And the, the first part of it, that where he begins, is a quote from, um, from Harker, who's one of the main characters, Jonathan Harker, who says, um, there's, there's a longer passage here, but the final sentence is, and yet, unless my sense is deceived, oh, well, excuse me, um, it is the 19th century, up to date with a vengeance. And yet, unless my senses deceive me, the old centuries had and have powers of their own, which mere modernity cannot kill. And that, I think, is a great introduction to one of the main themes in this article. He, he teases this out in a lot of different directions, and depending on how things go, I'll be pulling out other quotes from the article along the way. But the essential point in a lot of ways is that Harkness, or Harker is a, a man in the modern world. He's a man who is... Um, you know, this is England in the late 19th century. This is the epitome of the Industrial Revolution, science, all of those kinds of things. He's a man of that environment who is sent into an area that is really, in a lot of ways, pre-modern. And what he encounters in this pre-modern world, in the person of Dracula and his minions, is something 
that doesn't fit in the modern world and yet somehow is being brought in. And the whole story then really revolves around what happens when these these entities, these things out of the old centuries are brought into modernity and how the two of them interact. Yeah, there's so something there's something to that the theme. Yeah, there's something to that sentence too, which I think strikes uh, contemporary people as perhaps odd. We we normally uh, see the modern world as powerful and significant. And what we have uh, noted here is that it is mere modernity and uh, mere modernity can't kill something that uh, comes, you know, forward from the old century, something, you know, something in the past that is too powerful for modernity to kill. Right. And th- this is a theme that he plays with throughout the article in different ways. Um, there are a lot of different things that he does in this. And frankly, there are certain parts of it that after reading it four or five times, I'm still not sure I'm really getting what he's saying. Okay. <laughs> but but there, there are a lot of things that I think are worth considering. There are a whole slew of things that are here. So one of the things we've got to talk about is when we talk about modernity, what is it that we mean by the word? And we really need to define this because, frankly, if we don't understand that, if we don't understand what the modern world is about, what modernity as a movement or as a worldview even is about, we're not going to get both our own culture, the tensions that arise in it, and one of the key points he's making in Dracula. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about modernity. The way the author defines modernity is actually pretty close to the way I would do it. Um, He sees modernity as being built around two key ideas. First of all, the idea of progress, that history is progressing, that things are getting better, that things are improving, that we're on an upward trajectory. Um, I think that that is really, in a lot of ways, the critical point about modernity. He adds an additional one, though, that I think is important as well, and that's that this advancement is technological, that it is through science and particularly technology that the world is improving, that our physical conditions are improving, and so on, and that in the modern mindset, this is something that will go on essentially infinitely. We will continue to constantly improve. We will continue to constantly get better. We will continue to constantly progress. It's the, the essence of a philosophy that is both optimistic and extraordinarily self-confident. And yeah. in, in those things are its weakness. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a line here that's really stood out to me. I highlighted. He said, uh, he says, moderns, this is the author of the article, who is um, John Schuler. So he says, uh, moderns instinctively understand that to cease to innovate is to cease to exist. This gets to something you've talked a lot about, Tom, being as becoming. Yeah, and that's one of the things I think, the, one of the assumptions I think underwriting this notion of modernity, even the way uh, he puts it here, is that it is, it is an expression of a kind of mechanistic philosophy. Um, one in which, yeah, what we have is, is basically the unfolding of being um, 
uh, the development of it um, or something, but from a picture where everything is kind of closed in on itself. It's think of it sort of as a, you know a, a, the old metaphor of a, of a working watch, right? Um, it's a machine, and this machine is carrying out this these these patterns within this locked in situation. And so everything that is and everything that is of significance is what happens in the running of that machine. And that machine is interpreted then as unfolding or progressing um, in some sense towards more complex and advanced kinds of creatures. And then ultimately a, 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 an emerging mind and then in, in that becomes able to innovate and, and harness the natural powers that the machine kind of Man, manufacturers and, and kind of bring it into their their own control of their evolution, if you will. But everything is kind of locked in into matter. Yeah, and, right. And then the role of human beings is to sort of, I guess, unlock its potential. You know, sort of, sort of bring sort of into beings uh, those potentials. Or and, and it's a weird. It creates a weird dynamic. And I was just talking to Glenn, with Glenn about this before we got going. Is that it? Really, it really brings you to just two options, and both of these options are problematic. Um, it basically will talk about sort of the human being as you either have Descartes, where you have a ghost in a machine. So, and this this is something where you basically have something, yes, uh, something that is a different substance than matter that allows you to to just through sheer assertion of will, if you will. Um, bring the the material world into some kind of subjection to it um and it in it in it, it but the problem is the the relation of of that ghost to that machine is, is it creates all kinds of problems they they're not um they're not understood in a robust way of say the the you know the earlier worlds and then the other option is kind of monistic monism um, basically, everything is matter, and so the the ghost is is not merely in the machine, but is a byproduct of the machine. So, so the 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 self, the soul, the the so called agent is really just an expression of these complicated inner workings of organized matter. And so, yeah, so it, yeah, so it's a bizarre it's a bizarre way of trying to talk about agency. And, and even the ability of, of the human to kind of do, be a part of this. Um, and, and so you already, what you, I think the short of it is you have a very locked in, narrow picture going on here. And one that yeah, um, is not open to, you know, uh, further ways of understanding reality. Yeah, there's some things going on here in the article that have to do with signs. And this may be where, you know, the, the article becomes very... Uh, I guess uh, dense or yes. difficult. To, <laughs> so you have you have these uh, a systematic mode of thinking, uh, which is uh, you, you know based on signs that are disconnected from the natural world. In other words, these are these are alien to the, the natural. And then you have signs that are natural in character, and it, and it's as though if you choose one, you kind of miss the other. But you know, back now, to this. He does use the word symbol rather than sign, and I think it's important yeah, to, yeah. to note that. Yeah. Um, what, he, what he means by this, and this is actually a critical point in, in his argument, I think this, this was the toughest part of the, the, the paper in a lot of ways. Um, what, what he means by this is all right, you take a look at science. What science is looking for, he, as he puts it, is closure. That is to say, we want the laws that govern everything 
without exception. You know, so you want to create a closed system. Now, the problem is that when we do this using our minds, we do it using, well, it's essentially a kind of symbolic logic. We use our, our logical faculties to create a set of artificial symbols that we relate to each other. And this creates a system. And this is all entirely mental. Okay. But, and this tendency towards systematization is part of modernity. But with science, what you have to do is, you know, well, for example, take math. He uses the example of math. Math is all symbolic logic. It's all how these things fit together and deductions based on that. The difference between math and the sciences is with the sciences, you have to relate this to empirical experience. You don't necessarily have to do that with math. But with, with the sciences, you have to do that. So you have a set of empirical experiences that you have. You have a, an overarching system that you've created using these mental symbols and then through the scientific method of hypothesis and so on, you try to connect the two. Okay. So that's that's the big picture of what he's saying here. Yeah, there's a there's a sentence that I think sums that up pretty well. He says, mathematics considered purely is governed solely by non-contradiction and has no relationship to the external world. So um, you know, you've got that, which is the modern way of, of sort of thinking about, uh, you know, reality and, and general rules, laws, etc. Later on, he talks about natural symbols, uh, which are particular and uh, can't be uh, sort of managed or thought about in this way. I guess part of, you know, I, I imagine our listeners by this point are wondering, what's this have to do with Dracula? <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let, let's, let's get the natural symbol. They're probably wondering now, what it has to do with anything. <laughs> there's that too. What it has to do with Dracula is that the modern way of thinking in terms of these artificial symbols and science and things like that is completely contradicted by everything that Dracula as a, as a being, as an entity, is. And that's where you get to natural symbols. And this idea of natural symbols are things that an individual perceives sort of almost intuitively as having greater significance. And the, the, one of the key distinctions he makes, and this, this again ties into the story of Dracula, is that artificial symbols, these scientific symbols and things like that, go from the general to the specific. We start with the general law and we look at the specifics through the light of the general law. Natural symbols operate in the other direction. So the, the science seeks closure. It seeks to find this point where everything fits, you know, and, and you reach an end. So you go from the general to the specific. Natural symbols work in the other direction. They're much more open-ended you go from particulars to generalization. So for example, in a fable, he uses the example of a fable, you have a fable that is a specific story that has general applicability in terms of the moral lesson that's drawn from it. So with, with what he calls a natural symbol, you go from the specific to the general. With the artificial symbols, like what we get in science, you go from the general the general law to the specifics. Well, yeah, would it be fair to say here, Glenn, that, that when we're talking about natural symbols, we're dealing with a, with a form of knowledge that we, we simply uh, can't master 
in the same way we would master scientific knowledge working from general laws that we can impose upon things. Well, yeah, because because the direction of natural symbols, as he puts it, I, I don't like the terminology, but the direction of natural symbols is toward open-endedness. It's toward the general, and therefore you can never really reach the end of it. Well, it Whereas it, 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 the goal of science is to get to the end of it, to get to the definition that will work always. Well, it, it's interesting because this, you know, this kind of parallels language when you talk about the different reality visions of of pre-modernity, especially in the West, to to what what changed with the mechanistic vision. So, the mechanistic vision or the naturalist vision or or whatever really develops in the modern. You, you matter starts to take on a, a radically different understanding. Nature does. Um, the natural, I mean, it, it sort of matter becomes sort of uh, almost inert and opaque kind of thing on, on one end. Um, and, and so, but, but in, in, you know, kind of floating around this machine for anything that, functional significance. But the, the older understanding, at least one rich tradition, is basically it, it mirrors matter, is always open to the transcendent, its source, um, but also mirrors in some way. I mean, Christian tradition, we talk about the, you know, manifest the glory of God and the invisible attributes through the, through the, the creaturely are clearly seen. And so it mir- mirrors the eternal splendors um, and, and truths. And so, so it is never just the particular things um, themselves are always, a, always oriented towards that from which, through which, into which, um, they they are basically receiving their being, or or that which they're kind of communicating in a larger web of meaning, um, and and so there, there is a fundamentally different understanding of the nature of the particular and the natural and the material going on in these contrasting um, uh, visions. Yeah. Well, consider in a scientific world where you've got a, a closed system, okay, where you're trying to find the laws that really define everything. What happens when you introduce Dracula? <laughs> now we're back to Dracula, which I know a right. lot of people are sighing and what? saying, at last we're back to Dracula. <laughs> but, well, 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 you know, they, they make the point. A vampire, Dracula or Lucy at one point, can make themselves essentially infinitely small. They can pass through a hair's breadth. Actually, Van Helsing at one point says, even if you were to solder something shut, Dracula could get through it. He does not obey the majority of natural laws. He is a creature that cannot be contained in normal natural law. He is open-ended in that sense. But there are supernatural laws that he must obey. Thus, you know, early on um, in the article, Harker, again, the, one of the main characters, Harker enters a world where natural events have purpose. Evil waxes and wanes with changes of the sun and tides. Biotic rhythms have sacramental potency. Actions have final purposes. So there are certain times, for example, when Dracula can change himself. There are other times when he can't. Okay, There's no natural law that explains these things, 
but there is something about the world itself that dictates on a supernatural level what is possible for Dracula. It's also worth noting, by the way, and this is where we're heading sooner or later, I hope, that one of the ways that you can really wreck Dracula's day is to put a consecrated host in his coffin. <laughs> the sacramental has power over him. The cross has power over him. But it's not a natural power. It's a supernatural power. It's something that cannot be reduced to science. It cannot be reduced to a closed system. It's something much more open-ended. Now, at the same time, when we think about Dracula, we think about uh, a creature uh, or a monster that uh, sustains itself by feeding on others. And this article gets into that a little bit, but I don't want to get ahead of my, uh, you here at all, Glenn. But how does that fit into some of this you know, stuff that we're talking about, I guess, just to kind of raise the, the, the question? Okay. Um, the, the, the way this article has it set out, and I, I think he's right about this. Um, he makes a comment early on. Let's see. Let me find it. Um diabolical forces, and he sees Dracula as very definitely diabolical, very definitely evil um, in, in a sort of absolute sense, unlike some modern treatments of Dracula, of uh, vampires. He sees Dracula as, as unmitigating, unmitigatedly evil, um, but human at the same time. So he can't be, he, he's not fully diabolical because there's still a component of humanity in them. But, but in any event, one of the things he says is diabolical forces make use of general generalities, these open-ended qualities, to repurpose good things for evil, such as rendering a woman a predator rather than a nurturer of children. Yeah. Okay, so, um, and, you know, he, he, he has a rather lengthy discussion of the fact that Rational creatures sort of instinctively think that rational creatures should not engage in predation against other natural creatures. Yeah, that, that was this, a, this, yeah, that was a very uh, arresting and uh, I think uh, you know significant pa passage uh, in his mm -hmm. treatment. Uh, go ahead, though. I'll try to find the, the the sentence that struck me as noteworthy. But go ahead. Yeah, but. Um, what, what he says about this is that Dracula's fundamental purpose is to take things that are good and natural and pervert them hmm. and to twist them out of their intent, even to the point of distorting sacrament. Okay. Uh, he, talks, he talks about the significance of ritual in here. He talk, refers to sacrament and so on. Rituals, he's got an interesting discussion of rituals. He, he says that what happens in a ritual is it's a way that the culture has of recognizing and acknowledging, again, these sort of natural symbols, these things that we know instinctively as being significant, as being important. So we instinctively know that there is something really significant about marriage. And so all cultures have a ritual connected to marriage. Most cultures have rituals connected to feasts. And what Dracula does is he takes these rituals, these things that are ritual that point to these, these deep, true significances, 
and he perverts them. Rather than having a feast that is a celebration, you have a feast where he is feeding on a person. Right. Where rather than affirming life, he's producing death. Rather than leading a soul to to heaven, as in the Eucharist, he's hindering the soul's spiritual progress and actually perhaps damning it. Right, right. So, you know, I I think um, the way uh, the scientific method uh, works has, um, you know, a range of, of, uh, you know, objects that it's appropriate for. And we all recognize that. But there are certain ways in which uh, the exercise of the scientific method violates the very thing that you were talking about if you, uh, you know, administer it uh, uh, sort of amorally or immorally. So, for example, you know, we were just talking about human beings uh, and how human beings. In fact, I came across this. Uh, I came across the sentence that I was thinking about. This is uh, in that section on the philosophy of the vampire under the subsection B, the animal and demo, uh, demonic aspects of the, of the vampire. The first sentence there is the predation of rational beings by rational beings brings forth an instinctive disgust. Now, the instinctive is something that carries no weight in science. <laughs> in other mm-hmm. words, now we can observe and study the instinctive. We can categorize it. We can try to measure it. All that kind of we stuff. can try but, to even make it normative, but but without without ground. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's it. But at the same time, we all know that if if, if we just simply uh, dissect a live human being just because we're curious to see how uh, the, that that person works, in other words, yeah. without any uh, regard for that person's, as he notes here, rationality. In other words. Uh, integrity and moral standing as another, then we know that we've done something disgusting and something that that you know is uh, blameworthy and punishable. But on its own grounds, on scientific grounds, that cannot be established. In other words, we can't use science to to, to establish right. that. So so these instinctive or these what he's, he refers to, as you've noted, maybe inadequately, but natural symbols, let us know almost sort of we apprehend the, these truths immediately. It's not as though that, the, you know, the, you know the, the big question in the history of philosophy is how do we know certain things like this? Some, some people say, well, it's a kind of recollection, you know, amnesis. And other people think, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of, you know, sort of uh, nurture in the early stages of life. But, you know, there's always been uh, the contemplative side of, you know, of, you know the, the Western tradition, which just says we apprehend and just simply know. It's not just simply that we, you know, kind of uh, have presuppositions. If we understand presuppositions as just sort of like uh, information that's packed in, there's another way that, 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 that we've understood this in the West, and that's been, that's been like in the sense when we have the beatific vision, when, we, when people uh, – have, have seen a theophany or something and they recognize the holiness of God. There's just a, there's just a recognition. There's an, I, I am apprehending something greater than me, holy other. Uh, in the same way, there's a kind of just immediate recognition, you know, that this is wrong. Uh, and it, it's operating in the way that, you know, we're talking about here through, uh, in the course of this article, anyway, it's natural symbols as opposed to, you know, the methodical, laborious approach of the uh, of the scientist. Yeah, 
And along with that, this um, he, he makes an interesting point, I think, where he says, you know, we've got history of slavery. We have history of warfare, all of these kinds of things. And he points out that those things prove his point, because in all cases, in order to hold a slave, you've got to devalue them, dehumanize them. In order to engage in warfare, you've got to dehumanize your opponent. Even today, we don't talk about enemy soldiers. We talk about targets. Right. Right. You know, so so in order to do that, in order to overcome this instinctive disgust of a rational being killing a rational being, we have to derationalize the opponent. I, I think you hit something very, very important by just saying it the way you did the, 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 just now, rational being and rational being, mm-hmm. um, because I think this is where it, it lifts it out of rash, uh, material, material substance <laughs> or ma- material substance, um, because what you have there is the place where privation and evil and the distortion of the good actually can take place and genuinely be something evil um whereas on mm-hmm. if it's if you're dealing with matter as matter what are you you what are you designating other than some kind of functional norm to whether or not matter is doing something normative or not good or bad or anything else in other words there, there is no there is no transcendental good by which to measure whether or not a a animal eats its children for nourishment or or nurtures them um, you can only say what is the typical habit, but there is nothing, nothing more. What is, what is geared towards its survival? Well, we don't know. It may survive by eating its children because it has nothing else to eat, right? Um, so, but but when you have when you're talking about the being, the human being, and then we're starting to get, get into natures, and then we're starting to get into larger purposes. That's where we're lifting out of merely the material and the functional to the ontological, where we're dealing with being and its perversion and its privation and its distortion. Um, and, and in this way, I mean, this is why even in Genesis where you have the, the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Well, they didn't physically die that day. Guess what? <laughs> but what happened, <laughs> right? Being brought into knowledge of good and evil, being brought into the realm of death, if you will. And so, so what in the realm of privation. And so I think this is that realm in which you have um, you have the, the 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 vampire. You know, if you're talking about the ontology, the vampire, for that matter, because you're talking about here's someone is human, right? In in the way of understanding this, and then also is a privation going on here, and then there is a distortion of the goodness of being towards. Um, in 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 basically, I mean, if you think of privation in, in Western ways of dealing with with evil, it the, it has no ontology of it. So it has no being. It lives off of the being, the good being. Um. Mm-hmm. You might want to define privation. I'm not sure everybody's going to know that one. Um, I, I mean, I, I think maybe just an analogy is good. Um, think of a an umbrella with a hole in it. <laughs> okay, the umbrella without the hole is 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 kind of doing what it should and is what it is. It's an umbrella to keep the rain out. An umbrella with a hole in it is one that is an umbrella, but it has a lack in it. That doesn't that doesn't let it carry out its full essence. It, it's it's a it's a breaking of it, um, and so privation is is basically a lack in a good thing. It's, it's what sin is. It's yeah. something that is. It's it's almost a, maybe a can, cancer in a healthy cell is another way of doing it. 
uh, talking about. In other words, it needs the healthy cell in order to be, but it becomes something that is actually destructive of the healthy cell. It lives off of it, then is destructive of it. Um, I don't know. Maybe you have a, a better way of. Uh, no, I, I think that's a great way to put it, Tom. I think often, uh, you know, I don't know if it's just simply because of our tendency maybe to see spy versus spy comics when we're kids and Mad Magazine or something like that. We got one guy <laughs> in a white outfit, another guy in a black outfit. And we think that ontologically the good and the evil are just kind of equally real. But what, yeah. what privation helps us to see is that actually. Uh, being itself is is good and it is the only reality and evil is uh, a privation right it's a uh, like you noted a cancerous growth it seems to have a life of its own but it doesn't it's actually yeah. uh, feeding off of the the good uh, you, you might say well what, well don't we see that uh, throughout nature well yes and no uh, in the in nature we see yes some creatures you know consuming, but they're also uh, contributing to the good of the whole. Whereas with privation, we don't have any of that going on. It's just simply a falling into a kind of nothingness. Um, and, and there that, is and that, that's, and that's that. And for our audience, who, who's kind of big Tolkien people, um, I, from what I've read, and I've read it more than one place, the ring wraiths were almost conceived along this line of, of oh, yeah. basically being not full, not full realities, but privations. Um, so maybe yeah, that yeah. gives people a little sense. Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. picture of damnation is what we have with the rates, right? Yeah. The, the idea of privation is that evil doesn't have any ontological reality. Evil is the absence of good is really right. a simple, simple way of putting it. And the interesting thing is that Dracula is a creature of privation. Right. Everything he is about is, is really negating the good. Yeah. It's really about taking the good, twisting it, distorting it destroying it um and that's about it that's all he does yeah yeah <laughs> and, and so the, the nature of the vampire is actually he doesn't put it this way but it's almost deontological yeah it, it's really about destroying being about twisting it dis distorting it making it into something that, well, what does he do? He creates spawn that go out and do the same kinds of things that he does that go out and destroy that, that, that twist, that distort, that, you know, that, that's, that's the whole thing. You know, one of the things I'd like to just get into uh, quickly here is we, we, we touched on very, very quickly an important matter in the history of Western thought and, and in Christianity, and that is human nature and its unique status so, you know, when we talk about rational being, as opposed to, say, you know, other creatures, animals, um, there is a kind of violation, uh, you know, that uh, occurs when we harm another rational being, as opposed to when we harm uh, other kinds of creatures. There's, you know, uh, we're talking about human nature is not just simply one sort of manifestation of a kind of... Uh, whole uh, natural world, but there's something uh, distinct about human beings that distinguishes us. Uh, yeah. So the, uh, the predation of rational beings by rational beings is what we're talking about as human beings feeding on other human beings, which is yeah. different than, say, human beings feeding on cattle or rabbits yeah. or chicken or whatever. And, and, and the, I mean, and I do think, I mean, in, in Christianity, you do, I mean, we have a, a, even though 
there is a pure recognition of these things can be used for food and other things. There's also a compassionate side of, of, of human creatures towards other creatures, but that doesn't erase the kind of qualitative distinction of creatures being made in the, the image of God. Um, and that puts a kind of responsibility on human creatures as well for the whole of creation. Um, that I think is, is, uh, is, is probably why you see with these kind of figures, they're not only distortative of the human, but of everything. There, there, there is a destructive side, and I think Tolkien hits on this, especially with the you know, destruction of forests and, and things along this line, this, this way in which this impulse moves beyond the human to the, re- you know, a, a sort of, maybe you could think of it as inverting the, the, the creation mandate of, of humans to, to properly cultivate the garden, right? Um, to, to know that some of that is for food and, and yes, that they aren't, they're, they're, there's a different, different order and level of, of creatures and their dignity before God. But um, you, you make that inverted and we become kind of, we become, our loves are distorted and our relation to that creation is different. And then we end up relating to the whole of it um, in this, this pattern in which we, we are often, often trying to, um, to relate to it in in ways of privation. Yeah, I think another thing is sort of, I think, is is useful for uh, for you know thinking about Dracula, is that Dracula, if we think about him, I know in terms of the philosophy of the vampire, as as, as the author here is, uh, you know, discussing, uh, we can see that uh, the vamp the vampiric is not limited to Dracula. In other words, uh, there's a sense in which we have vampires uh, with us now uh, in, in the sense that they, they may not suck your blood literally, but they suck the life out of you in other ways. Um, yeah, yeah. And they, they're, they're, they are uh, uh, you know, predators. Uh, they're preying upon you, preying upon us, preying upon others. It's worth kind of playing this out and maybe even thinking a little bit about, uh, you know, whether this was what, you know, uh, the whole sort of mythology of the vampire is intended to to bring to our attention. Yeah. Historically, and I think we did a show on New England vampires a couple of years back. Um, Historically, you know, the vampire legend doesn't really start with Dracula in its original form. It bears almost no resemblance to Dracula. Dracula effectively creates the modern vision of the vampire. But the historical concept of the vampire was typically associated with tuberculosis, hmm. which is a wasting disease. Right. The idea was, which frequently would, would hit an entire family one after another in sequence. So the idea would be that there was someone that was coming and feeding on the life essence of those people. And so they would dig up graves to try to find out who was doing it. And due to various things related to decomposition or other such things, they would find some, someone that they assumed was the one that was going out and, and uh, doing this. And then they would do some kind of uh, 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 disruption of the body to prevent them from being able to come out again. You know, they might rearrange the bones or uh, put a brick between their teeth or any number of things like that. But again, the idea of, of sucking the life force from a person, waste, create, causing them to waste away, I think we can, we've probably all met people who functionally do that, <laughs> who are just complete drains on our time and our energy and our attention and everything else. 
and that, you know, that are functionally energy vampires. Yeah. <laughs> and um, even self-consciously uh, so, I guess what I mean is that, you know, there are people that you come across who are just so difficult to deal with that you just say, well, I just am drained having to talk to that person. But there, I think, uh, are people who take this uh, in a more diabolical direction who I've, in the course of a ministry, dealt with folks like this, for whom they really do feed off of you. Uh, maybe in the sense that they need you to prop up their self-image and uh, or they need your, they need your, um, uh, I guess, uh, involvement in their lives. And what I mean by that is uh, they need to be involved in your life, kind of manipulating you and using you to achieve their ends. There's, there's a lack of genuine uh, communion in the sense that, you know, with, a commu- with, some, with communion and communication, you know, you have a, something that's going on in two directions. Uh, these are people uh, who are not really interested in uh, you as much as what you can do for them, if you get what I mean. And this can happen at a very, just at a purely psychological and social level. Uh, I'm not talking about an employer, although that can be the case, or well, and you, know, you a politician. And you do see or, it. You, you see that step into... I mean, darker manifestations of it. I mean, anyone who feeds off of a destructive side or, I mean, you th- think of something as sinister as, as serial killers. I mean, look at like, Ramirez. I mean, they fed off of the fear they created and, uh, and, and in a way that just just tying it down to, to I mean, it, it could, there are elements in their past obviously play into it, but they're, they're not reducible to those kinds of things. Um, and, and and you do see the, this kind of twisting and turning of goods towards these very dark and uh, and, and evil um, ways in which people feed off of these these uh, these privations and 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 what they what they do do set forth um, and and that's you know it's something that naturalism and, and mechanism thinks it's going to just you know kind of organize its way out of out of the matter is it's just a delusion yeah you know you see it sometimes in pastoral ministry where you have uh really sociopaths who are leading churches and uh using people (laughs) uh sometimes creating almost very cult-like environments uh and um and you wonder where do these people come from I, i don't know if they just sort of uh emerge kind of fully embodied like Athena from the head of Zeus or something, you know, I think think they they can kind of come, come out in more embryonic forms. And then over time, uh, things can, uh, skew, be twisted, uh, you know, people be corrupted, uh, you know, along the lines of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. That, that certainly can happen in, in all sorts of settings, family environments, church environments, political parties, you know, you know, uh, business corporations. It happens. Uh, the Cub Scouts. <laughs> it can happen just about anywhere yeah. you can think of. Well, what you see there, I guess, is the other side of the relationship, right? I mean, the, in order for for the vampire to do its thing, it has to find kind of hosts, right? Um, and you see this. I mean, you think of um, you know Jim Jones. You find a, a cultic group that kind of nourishes that 
that feasting, if you will, um, and then you you end up seeing that relationship and distortion develop over time. So these these things, um, the imaginative uh, dimensions of of what's going on here are very rich in in terms of being able to kind of unpack some of this stuff in ways that just you know our reductionistic psychological analysis tends to to miss. You know, one of the comments he makes is vampiric lust isn't simple lust. It feeds off of a destruction of the spiritual dimensions of love. Hmm. And that that's that's a um, you know that's that's sort of an interesting analysis because of this this uh, erotic vampire yeah. thing that we've going. The the and, and Stoker is really the place where that begins. But yeah. this notion, again, it goes back to taking something that is good and twisting it. Yeah. In a lot of ways, you mentioned the image of God before. In a lot of ways, you can make the argument that what Dracula is doing is trying to make people in his own image, which is functionally the image of the devil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where he takes them, he enthralls them, he uh, turns them into his minions, he... he turns them into vampires under his control and his authority, um, and so on. Now, wasn't the Twilight series about vampires? I don't know. I never read any of the dumb books, but I (laughs) I, I had the impression that that's what it was about. Does anybody know? Vampires and werewolves and things like that. It's a complete, I mean, it, uh, yeah. Well, I guess, Um, I guess the thing I'm getting at is, one, there were a lot of teeny bopper girls and women who just were completely gaga with this thing. And then you brought up the the erotic element. Um, what is it? A, and there it does seem to be a kind of glamour, even with the Dracula story. I mean, he's a count after all. We're not talking about just some guy who's a, a mechanic or, you know, a liveryman or a soldier or something. We're talking about a guy who's part of the aristocracy here. Have, have you had any thoughts on that, Glenn? What is it about the, the sort of this vampiric um sort of, uh, you know, the legend of the vampire that, that appeals to people more than just, you know, the kind of fascination that we all have with something odd. There is a kind of erotic uh, and, and uh, there's a mystique to it. Yeah, I, th- I think some of that, again, is the creation of Bram Stoker. It's not, that's yeah. not a historical of vampires at all. Um, you know, so you've got a whole bunch of female vampires that are all busy wanting to get a piece of Harker. <laughs> you know, so there's this sort of there's this sort of uh, uh, sexualization that shows up there, um, and the other part of it is that in a lot of ways, vampires are very much the nobility of the monster world. You know, he's not he's a count, yeah, but it goes beyond that. There, there's a sense that these guys are are at the peak. There's not there's nobody over a vampire. You know, they're they're. You know, so I, I think that this combination of, of this sort of th- this idea of a, a uh, an anti-nobility um, and again, the what Stoker does with the eroticization of it, because now it's not just in, in Stoker's case, it's not just for the the titillation of the thing. He's making a point about evil. So this is a this is this is a kind of ontological reality. In other words, that this is like an apex predator or something. Right. He's an apex predator, and even with the eroticization, the point is 
This isn't just titillation. This is twisting. It is distortion. It is perversion of something that is good and holy into something that is twisted. I mean, he's got a quote in here of the sec- uh, on this section. Um, the fair girl, with a laugh of ribald coquetry, turned to answer him, you yourself never loved, you never love, addressed to Dracula. On this, the other women joined, and such a mirthless, hard, soulless laugh rang through the room that it almost made me faint to hear. It seemed like the pleasure of fiends. You don't love, you never love. Hmm. Now, are these the other vampires or these? Uh... These are the other vampires. Okay. These are the female vampires in, in Dracula's court. Got it. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it, it, I mean, there's a lot of things that come up. Yeah. I mean, I know. I mean, <laughs> I remember uh, you have this kind of tie in some of these more popular versions that are kind of post Brand Stroger about kind of this promise of immortality, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and this kind of that, that, that this what what is really a privation and a living off of being se- seems as though it's like the the avenue it's a deceptive avenue to eternal life but then you have kind of you know again i don't want to <laughs> i don't know why i'm on a serial killer uh, kick today it's probably because i watched a, f- a few late at night but i mean you think of the the strange things that happen around figures like ted bundy right they're on trial. They have been charged with all these horrendous murders, and that you have women writing these people wanting. I know they want to kind of tap into the popularity of it all, but also times you have them writing them in prison and marrying them, not being popular at all. And there is this kind of sinister attraction of of twisted souls to this kind of twisted kind of um, darkness that I think is captured in, in some of that, um, in, in the sexualization of it as well, the romance, um, element. It's, you know, Bram Stoker, um, he may have twisted the history of it, but he did enter an element of, of lust and darkness that surely could be a, a, a legitimate part of, of extending what's going on here. Yeah, there's no question. Bram Stoker creates modern Dracula, and it is a brilliant, brilliant feat that he did. I mean, there's yeah. no, there's no question about. Yeah, uh, you know, if you're looking at this from a folkloric perspective, he just adds boatloads of stuff that aren't in the the folklore. But that doesn't matter. He creates something here that has ongoing power over a century later, yeah. um, and that includes a lot of really sort of implicit profound theological and psychological and philosophical reflection. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure he did that intentionally, but with what he created, it, it opens up the door to that and, and actually invites it. I'd like to return to this um, convergence of uh, the erotic and the vampiric, um, because uh, I think this is something that, is worth reflecting on, even though it's an something you know it's an uncomfortable subject. Um, whenever we think about evil, we think about something that, uh, in its original state, was good that has been corrupted. So you know, even you know, in Lord of the Rings, you know, this is a point that's made. Once Melkor wasn't what we know uh, he became, or Sauron, or there was a there was a point in which you know Sauron was a good guy. <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, something occurs. There's a there's a twisting. There's a corruption. 
So when we think about this erotic element, the attraction of, uh, you know, the, the feminine, you know, in, in this case, to this masculine vampire, what, what can we sort of uh, d- discern in that about the good? In other words, if we think about it like as, if this is an inversion. If this is an inversion of something that, uh, that is otherwise good in its original state, what, what is it that, we're, that was inverted? Well, I can only you know, make some guesses. Um, I think that there's something maybe uh, heroic, glorious, uh, sort of um, virile, you know, that uh, is going to be attracting, you know, attractive to women uh, in sort of the sort of the masculine uh, archetype, maybe if that's the right word, or uh, you know, sort of this this uh, state of being that expresses, you know, some kind of original good before it's it's fallen. And now, you know, yes, uh, the wicked uh, find the, the wickedness of Dracula, you know, uh, compelling, you know, sort of like uh, moths to a flame or something like that. But I, I don't know if this, this prompts you guys to think about anything. You know, it's, it's, you know, what I see, and this is the old, this the stereotypical, the girls like the bad boy kind of thing. And then what is it yeah. about the bad boy the girls like? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I would put it a little bit differently because modern vampires are stripped of their di- diabolical elements. You know, in, in modern treatments of vampires, they're tragic heroes. Okay. They're romantic heroes in a lot of ways. Um, the the real diabolical component is gone because we live in a world that doesn't recognize good and evil. And in that kind of a world, the kind of extreme sensual pleasure becomes an end in itself. And I think that has that's something to do with it there's hitching uh, your, your, your wagon to power. There's this lust for, well, immortality. All of these kinds of things, I think, come together. And the idea is that the vampire is actually, this is where they get Stoker completely inverted. The vampire is going to truly love you, and he'll love you for eternity. Yeah, that's kind of the twilight treatment. <laughs> right. 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 Whereas they can't love because love has a spiritual component that is antithetical to their nature in Dracula. So you you would say that the, the thing that uh, uh, draws these uh, women to Dracula has nothing to do with, um, you know, this sort of uh, flighty twilight treatment. It has more to do with just uh, a base longing for uh, sensuality or for... Uh, and love, empiric. Well, of and 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 love, because in the modern ones, the vampires actually can love. But I'm, I guess, I'm thinking about Dracula here as opposed to the modern treatments. Mm, yeah. Because you know. Yeah. Well, why why be attracted to a serial killer? Well, yeah. that's what I'm. That's what I was. That's what prompted my my thinking here is that you know, that, can you think of anything more abhorrent than that? And yet, serial killers do get love letters, apparently. Uh, with enough frequency, they, yeah, they get married they and it. have kids, and yeah. yeah, I mean, and yeah, it, it is a, it, it is. I mean, again, I, I understand that you know some people do crave 
attention. So if this, you know, during a trial, if all eyes are on this person and someone else is kind of, that gives them that. But that doesn't explain those that go on behind the scenes, marry people, have children, and yet, the, the you know, and there is this kind of draw of darkness. Um, yeah, it, 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 it is. I mean, I mean, it could be. I mean, you're just talking about the way evil can, can work. I mean, evil can work in that way in which that really dark death kind of thing, that that undoing of being, if you will, becomes uh, something lusted for. It, it, it is the inverse of our immortal longings. And it is kind of a, it is a perversion of that towards longing for the absolute negation of, of it rather than, than um, you know, it, its fulfillment. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's kind of speculating here. But. Yeah, yeah, well, it, you know, maybe we're venturing into a world uh, in which we're looking for answers uh, that are rational when everything that we're looking at is not. <laughs> so you, yeah. get my, you get my drift, you know. Uh, Anyway, we should we should uh, we should wrap this thing up. Uh, we've gotten to that well, time. Anything you want to I'd say like to, more there, Glenn? Yeah, I'd like to read a little bit of his conclusion. Okay, because this brings back this issue of modern versus well, the old centuries, um, which I think is in, we didn't get here, but I think that this is an important point that he's making with regard to, for example, neo paganism, another topic we've talked about before. Um, centuries and epochs may have a power of their own, both as the present and the past. The old centuries exert power over the soul through their symbolic cultures and ecologies. You have to read the article to understand that. The power of the old centuries does not grow merely because they are past, but rather because of modernity's self-awareness, precisely because modernism understands its own power in technological and instrumental terms the old centuries, full of natural symbolism, exert great power over it. Most obviously, whenever moderns dare to travel, as Jonathan Harker did, to places where the pre-modern still reigns. When Dracula traveled into modernism's dominion, he brought the power of the old centuries with him, even as he intended to turn modernism against itself. It is unwise to leave the old centuries alone where and when they are. They carry with them older cultures than our, that our science ignores. It must dismiss them as accidental, but accidents ought not to cohere. These cultures arise on their own and, are, and always are growing through the cracks of modernism. In Dracula, the rich culture overpowered the poor culture. Heroes rose from apparently ordinary matter-of-fact moderns to resist the vampire's very scientific machinations. Hmm. In other words... Only when, as he puts it elsewhere, the age of heroes arises again, can the old centuries be defeated because modernity has no power to deal with them. Yeah, that's true. And Dracula exists in the cracks of modernity, as does neo-paganism and all of these other things. I think they're all akin in this power of the old centuries over the modern world. Yeah, they're seeping out in, in uh, ways that people didn't anticipate. Uh, it reminds me of Rusty Reno's uh, book that is entitled, uh, what is it, The uh, Revenge of the Old Gods or The Return of the Old yeah, Gods. I think it's yeah, the Return of the, yeah, strong return of the Old Gods. Something of the Strong Gods. The Strong Gods. God. Yeah, Return of yeah. the Strong Gods. Yeah, yeah. Not these uh, thin, wispy, 
you know, sort of uh, milk toast deities that that uh, mm-hmm. characterize the modern world, like you know, the god of deism and stuff, stuff like that. Yeah. Anyway, we should wrap it up. Um, anything you want to say, Tom, as we as we say goodbye? Nope, I said enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we do appreciate your uh, su- your support and your interest in the theology podcast. Uh, I noticed on uh, you know Apple Podcasts that we're up to two hundred ratings and uh they're good ratings and uh we're glad for those and and uh, if you'd like to to add to that number then uh please do and uh, if you uh, are one of our financial supporters we want to thank you for that there are some folks who, who support us through the fight laugh feast uh network and that's definitely appreciated we have folks who even uh support us through anchor podcast and we have folks who th- uh, support us just by sending us uh you know gifts through our uh, website, the uh, Theology Podcast uh, website. So, uh, you know, to all the folks who who help us out in those ways, we really do appreciate it. Uh, so those funds go to pay for the show, keeping it, uh, you know, produced and uh, in your, uh, you know, your uh, your your feed, your podcast feed each week. So, anyway, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.